0: justice
1: for all. Human rights are women's rights. Save the world. <laughs> Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. My guest today is Samantha Nutt. She is the founder and executive director of War Child North America. And we have a discussion at the top of the interview about what her organization does. She's had a fascinating career. Her roots are in humanitarian work, and we have a deep conversation about some intense experiences she's had in war zones around the world. Here it is, my conversation with Dr. Samantha Nutt. It's a good one. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Eslanyan from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
0: The International Federation of War Childs, we work in 22 different war-torn countries. The offices uh, for Canada and the U.S., we're in seven different war-torn regions with a heavy focus on uh, war affected parts of Africa, for example, but we're also uh, in Afghanistan. Um, And over the years, we've worked in Iraq, we're at the Syrian border, uh, we were in Sri Lanka as well, so... Our mandate uh, more generally is to, we're, we're the bridge between emergency humanitarian assistance and development organizations. Our focus is really on child protection. Uh, and with that, we work in the areas of education for children, which is extremely important when you're talking about war, especially as the longer a war drags on, kids fall farther and farther behind. But it's also a very safe and protected environment for kids. Uh, We work in the areas of justice, a lot of work around sexual and gender-based violence prevention, uh, judicial training, lawyers, paralegals, bringing cases forward, trying to promote an end to the climate of impunity. And then the third part of what we do, we call opportunity, which is
1: which is fundamentally
0: about economic development, about making sure that that families and young people especially uh, have the means and the opportunity to be self sufficient and self-reliant, which is critically important when you're looking at uh, kids especially who are recruited uh, into different militia groups and rebel groups. Economic stability uh, we know is a really important uh, preventive tool when it comes to keeping kids out of those groups and reducing some of the economic drivers
1: yeah I remember I, I was reading this the, one of the paul Collier's books and he, he made this mention of like the best um anti sort of child soldier recruitment tool is like construction jobs where young men can go and work uh young men in particular can can go and work construction jobs instead of being uh tempted by armed groups
0: well that is exactly right and um and it's interesting because we've had a program in Darfur uh, funded by USAid for well, the program has been going for the last 10 years, but it's been funded by USAID for the last four, where we're working with uh, young men and young women uh, in the internally displaced camps, many thousands of them, and one of the skills training livelihoods jobs that we've been doing has been construction, and when they finish their training program with us, which is about a year long, they're automatically given union cards so they can go out to work. And the studies that we've done from that initiative alone have found that within six months, those kids, those young people, they're not really children, they're between the ages of 16 and 24, but those young people were able to quadruple their household income. And the same studies that we've conducted on those kids to show what the likelihood was of them returning to armed groups, even when those armed groups were coming into the camps and actively recruiting, was about 0% or very close to 0%. And so we, we know from our own Uh, analysis and firsthand experience that that economics are an extreme are extremely important drivers when it comes to the choices that young people make uh, surrounding war um can
1: you talk a little bit about your work in syria i mean for i think at least two years now unicef has been warning of like a lost generation of syrian youth And, and you mentioned that you work uh in the syrian border region what sort of programs are you running there
0: uh, well, we have been initially working on uh, child protection initiatives within the UK office and the Dutch office, uh, the Dutch are in Lebanon, but the UK office is in the camps, uh, running child protection initiatives through the schools. Uh, our work has been focusing, and we're just in the process of ramping it up, on those refugees who have left the camps but are now living within communities. And it's a huge problem, particularly in uh, in Jordan, for example, where you've got uh, a large number of families and young people who are still struggling with access to school and they're not allowed to work and there's a lot of uh, child labor that's that's taking place as a result because the parents can be arrested if they're working and so they send the kids out either to to beg or to engage in menial labor so the work that we are doing uh is to identify those high risk families to make sure that the kids are getting back into school and we are in the process of discussing with a number of local Jordanian organizations how we can work with both Jordanian youth, because high, there is a high level of unemployment uh, among those young people, as well as some of the Syrian refugees to engage them in, in meaningful work, meaningful paid work, uh, that will reduce those those risks and make those families more financially self-reliant, uh, especially as this war drags on because people are their their initial... Uh, resources that they had, that they have been saving, or that they were able to leave Syria with, are now beginning to dry up, and the vulnerabilities are getting much, much, much uh, worse. At exactly the same time as international donors are losing interest, and this is a pattern that we see play itself out over and over and over again all around the world, and and this is when the real, the really challenging work begins. Um, and unfortunately, that's that's uh, the. the the time when we see a lot of people moving away and, and moving out and organizations leaving, unfortunately.
1: Um, I mean, do you expect, uh, re- I mean, do the refugees that you work with, uh, that your organization works with, do they uh, in Syria, do they have an expectation that they're going to return back to Syria? Um, I mean, this conflict has dragged on now for three years, three and a half years, four years and counting. Um, with no end in sight, I guess at what point do these like uh, temporary solutions that your organization is trying to implement become you know permanent?
0: You know it's that's a an interesting question. You can interview Palestinian refugees who will show you the key to their home uh, that they left 30 or 40 years ago. So I think that, That, um, especially when you're talking about Syrian refugees, and I was just there a few months ago, interviewing families at the border, there still is that expectation that they are someday going to return home, and that Syria will, once again, will will be a peaceful country. Uh, At the same time, the idea that this is going to be a temporary one or or two-year situation Um, nobody believes that anymore and a lot of families understand that they could be there for for 10 years and they are trying to rebuild their lives they're trying to uh, get their kids they're trying to reestablish a routine Um, which doesn't usually happen in the first little while because people presume that it's temporary and then life will go back to normal but you are beginning to see people putting down roots um, you know establishing patterns that they they recognize that this is this is not going to be solved tomorrow
1: or even the next day. Uh, so I want to switch gears a, a little bit, if that's okay with you. Um, I, so I, I've followed your work for a, a long time. I've seen you speak at the Social Good Summit in New York, uh, I think, a couple times. Um, and uh, so I've followed your work, but I, I realize I know very little uh, about you other than that you are a Canadian. Um, now, are you from Toronto? Were you born in Toronto?
0: I was born in Toronto, yeah, too many years ago now. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I was, uh, I was born in the part of Toronto called Scarborough, which is a, a suburb of Toronto, and I spent um, the first six years of my life in Africa, Uh, We left when I was about six months old, and then I was back to Toronto, and then I was in Brazil for a while when I was a teenager, and I finished uh, the last year of my education in in the UK before going to university here.
1: What were your parents up to? Why were you traveling so much?
0: Uh, My dad is actually an artist and uh, designs shoes, and so he was just doing shoe design work in in different parts of the world, and uh, my mom was supporting the family business.
1: Well, uh, I'm, this is, this begs further inquiry. What, um, how do you, what propels or compels a shoe designer to go to Africa? Where in Africa did, did you go at six month old?
0: Well, we were outside of Durban and my dad at the time was doing some work for Bata uh, Shoes. And, uh, and then I think when we were in Brazil, he was doing some work for a group called Sandac, which makes the plastic sandals that you might remember from the early 80s. And, um, and so that's, that, that's what he was doing. He was just drawing shoes.
1: Uh and where did you did you go in high to high school in Brazil and, and in South Africa?
0: No, I was very young when I was in South Africa. So okay. we we came back when, and I started grade school in in Canada. And uh and then I just took a leave of absence when I went to uh when we were in in Brazil for uh it was about 8 months. And then I did my I did a full year of high school in uh, in the UK. Uh
1: because your your folks uh moved to the UK for work.
0: No, that one I was on a, uh, I was on a scholarship for to study drama and 19th century romantic English literature. <laughs> so wow. I was I was way up in North Yorkshire at a school called Giggleswick, and it was uh, it was great. It was it was it was a very useful educational year, but also a very useful uh, a personal year too. And I when, by the time I entered university here, um, I was certainly ready to to get down to work, and I think that that was that was important.
1: Now, did you go to med school right away?
0: I did like, my I'm not undergraduate entirely sure how it works in Canada, yeah, yeah, so I did my undergraduate degree in a uh, combined – it was a special arts and science program that, that McMaster offers, which was fantastic. They only accept about 65 students a year, and you actually finish with a combined degree, both in arts and science, because I could never make up my mind. And it's funny, because I talk to a lot of young people now, and they're always saying – that they can't make up their mind, and I'm i telling them that you really don't have to. And I don't think that I ever did, to be honest with you. Even though I'm a doctor now, I'm I'm also an author and uh, and and a speaker. Um, so for me, the the arts and the humanities are still probably the biggest part of my life, much more so than than the sciences. Um, so, I did an undergraduate arts and science degree and then applied to medical school and started when I was uh, 21, and I was done when I was, when I was 24. Well, what made uh, you want
1: to, to apply to medical school? Like, why? I mean, uh, you know, it seems like your, your at least your, your parents' background is more in the arts and, and in design, and, and your uh, interests were more in arts and, and performance arts, as you said. What, what compelled you to uh, medical school?
0: I became very interested in my undergraduate program in human rights issues and social justice issues and I was uh, very active marching against apartheid. I was involved in uh, work around the health of First Nations communities and so I was very interested in that relationship between health and human rights and why some people um, have access to health and to health care and others others don't and that it was very much a question of of poverty um, and uh, you know, in services and uh, government policy. And so uh, that became a real fascination of mine. And when I applied to medical school, it was because I was interested in those what we call the broad determinants of health. And I was increasingly interested in international health and development from uh, a women's perspective. And that was why I applied. Uh, the three years I spent in medical school, for me, we um, were a little bit disappointing. I found that, uh, you know, while I'm certainly glad that I'm a doctor, I really did miss that immersion that I had in the humanities. And medical school is so clinically focused and so very, very narrow. And so I missed that, those, those bigger discussions um, that really fed me and fueled me during my, my undergraduate years.
1: And what, what year are we talking about? Like what year were you in medical school?
0: I graduated from med school in 94,
1: So, I mean, this is like a very early stages of of, um, international health and development, particularly from like a women's perspective, right? I mean, the the issues that you just said that you're interested in were not as mainstream as they are today, for sure, at least.
0: Absolutely. In fact, in my medical school class, I can count on one hand the number of people that used to show up whenever we would have an international health and development talk. And And then I ended up, uh, because for me, I I still wasn't sure whether I wanted to be a clinician, I ended up applying for another scholarship, and I went back to the U.K. to do a master's at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in public health in developing countries. And my thesis work was around uh, women and war and health and violence. And because I was doing that work, uh, that was why I ended up being recruited by UNICEF to work in in war-torn Somalia. And that, for me, was the first time I had ever... I had I'd done a little bit of work internationally, and I would obviously had this focus on women's health, but it was the first time I'd had the opportunity to really marry those two things uh, and ended up in a war zone, and that was a decision that changed the course of my professional career. Uh,
1: so when did you end up in Somalia?
0: I was in Somalia in 95, the early part of 95, and it was right on the heels of the Rwandan genocide, and so the country had gone from having about hundred. 40 to 160 international organizations running all of their healthcare infrastructure, what existed anyhow, to fewer than 40. And um, you, you can imagine just what a shambles uh, it had left behind, and it was on, during the second wave of a famine. Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a very, very difficult time, and UNICEF, uh, understandably, the big question that they had was, given all of the competing priorities uh, and the limited resources that they had and the dwindling public interest, what should their approach be and what should their priorities be, and so they pulled together this this team, and I was the only female, and I was tasked with uh, doing this, this work around women's health and identifying what the biggest, the most emerging threats might be
1: and so what what did you find? I, and how did you go about uh, finding out what these what these threats were? I mean, were you interviewing uh, women? Were you going to IDP camps? I mean, how did you go about this work?
0: I did all of that. yeah, so I had to, as part of this team, we traveled uh, throughout the country, and we I interviewed women, I interviewed healthcare workers. I had to review all of the data that was being collected by different organizations and tried to to pull it all together. Uh, looking at the, the the cold chain was really important. Vaccination coverage rates to try to figure out uh, where the risks might be coming from. But fundamentally, for me, landing uh, you begin to realize that the real enemy of maternal and child health in those environments is insecurity. And uh, insecurity creates uh, real challenges when it comes to access. Um, and uh, you know, and unfortunately, those two things couldn't they, they can't be divorced from one another. And uh, it was, it was, um, you know, it was a very, very hard, uh, challenging, threatening kind of time in in that country's history, and, um, and and the challenges that UNICEF and other organizations were facing were were monumental and often beyond their control.
1: Well, let's maybe set the scene a little bit for Somalia in, in the mid 1990s. So I, I suppose 93 was the Black Hawk Down incident.
0: That's correct. Uh, yeah.
1: Uh, so you're we talking about two years after that. So the U.S. pulls out. Um, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember, but, but the first phase of the U.N. peacekeeping force then had also begun to pull out by then, correct?
0: That, that is correct. And uh, you may recall that uh, there was a the Black Hawk Down incident, but that there was also the Canadian peacekeeping incident where they beat to death a Somali teen by the name of Shadena Um I don't know that. So, Will you
1: explain that? That's something yeah, that, that's so probably they're, lost they're, on a lot of listeners.
0: Yeah, so, uh, well, you may recall that it started with Operation Restore Hope, Uh, Bill Clinton, uh, Operation Restore Hope, and they landed on the beaches of Mogadishu ostensibly to uh, provide humanitarian assistance because there was a a very devastating famine that was gripping the the country. Uh, You know, we can debate whether the Operation Restore Hope happened a little bit too late to actually make a huge difference when it came to the famine, but it was to deliver humanitarian assistance. Um, There ended up being a significant amount of mission creep as well, where it turned into uh, an effort to try to get rid of uh, Mohammed Aidid, who was a very uh, brutal warlord, who was um, obviously one of the reasons why there had been a famine. He blocked all the roads, and so some of the more rural, distant areas from the capital were not getting access to food, and many, many hundreds of thousands of people died. And I was based in a part of the country called Baidoa, which uh, had witnessed the loss of about a quarter of a million people during that period of time, and was frequently called the the city of death. So you you have that initial uh, humanitarian operation, you have the politicization of humanitarian aid, um, you have the Black Hawk Down incident, you have Canadian peacekeepers involved in a very violent episode that sullied, uh, significantly sullied the reputation that Canadians had as peacekeepers compounded by, um, the, the needs, the em- in emerging enormous needs in Rwanda as a result of the genocide. And troops, uh, were withdrawn. It was mostly considered to be uh, a failure and, um, and people stopped talking about Somalia. And so when I arrived, uh, there was so little interest in Somalia. There was so much insecurity because the troops had been withdrawn. Um, there were very few international organizations still willing to operate in that environment. And, of course, we were in the midst of the second wave of, the, of a very devastating famine that that came as a result of that confluence of
1: circumstances. And how, as a humanitarian worker, were you able to navigate the country uh, amid such insecurity? Did you have any, like, close calls or near misses?
0: I I did. It was extremely challenging, although it must be said that trying to operate in Somalia has only gotten harder. It certainly hasn't gotten easier, and so when I look back now to that period of time, as dangerous and difficult as Somalia was, it certainly it became who who would have predicted this? I and mean, it became much more difficult to the point where international organizations really can't couldn't operate in Somalia. Uh, but at the time, UNICEF, we uh, they had armed guards, they had uh, armed security escorts, and uh, you traveled. You had to go by plane almost everywhere. So you traveled in these small six-seater World Food Program planes. It was pretty typical that you would arrive somewhere and then would go to leave, and uh, there would be six armed technicals that had surrounded the plane uh, with machine guns, and they were trying to extort money from you. We were driving around in a car that was a UNICEF car that had been looted a few years before, and now UNICEF was paying you know, to be able to use their own car to these various groups. Um, it, was, it was anarchy, and, and uh, it was the quintessential picture of a failed state, Um, and we did have, I mean, I certainly did have at least one close call, which I wrote about um, in my book, Damnations, but where I was at a a um, UNICEF-supported, essentially a a water-holding tank, and it was in one of the IDP camps in the north, and there was this little kid who was taking some water from the tank, and I, you know, I just bent over and asked permission to take a picture, and I took the picture, and the next thing I knew, I was surrounded by uh, several men who were screaming at me, who were armed and threatening me, and and um, and it was because they thought I was uh, taking a picture to report them, because as it turns out, they were extorting money from the uh, local people who were using the, the the water, uh, even though it was being provided to, to the camp for free, they were trying to extort money from people who were trying to use it, and so they thought I was in the process of reporting them. And there, were, uh, there was some gunfire exchanged, and I was pretty lucky to get out. But it, uh, you know, it, it, it is one of those situations where uh, your security can turn on a dime, and you can do something as benign as take a photo um, and not realize just how uh, significant that, that could be when it comes to your security.
1: I mean, how do you like process something like that I mean working in in a war zone knowing that something can turn on on a dime as you say
0: at the time I had just turned twenty five and I was the reason why I survived was because I had uh, great local staff who pulled up and grabbed me and and tried to defuse the situation with these guys in the camp and they threw me in the car and and then uh, there was i don't you know again there's some Gunfire that you could hear, and we didn't know whether they were shooting at us or just were shooting in the air to make a statement. And and I remember I sat in the back seat of the car, and I just wept. And um, uh, you know, after Somalia, I I didn't think that I would do this kind of work again. I thought it was um, it was just too much and and too difficult and too risky. And I certainly don't consider myself to be brave, uh, passionate, yes, but but courageous, no. And um, and then UNICEF called me again, um, and I ended up doing some work with the UN in, in Burundi during the genocide and, and in Liberia and in Iraq. And you you get to a point where you have to, which I think for me is a huge part of the impetus for War Child, where you you see the mistakes that are being made, you see the opportunities that exist to do something that's different, to do something that's good. Um, you see the strength and the courage and the determination of local communities and local community organizations. Um, and the, every day that you can wake up and channel that hurt or that fear or that anger or that loss that you experience into something positive, it, it it's, it's part of your recovery and it's part of how, how you cope. And that's not just true for me. I think it's true for for many of us who have uh, witnessed firsthand the, the terrifying and horrific effects of war around the world. Uh,
1: so how long did you spend in Somalia? Uh,
0: I was there, the whole consultancy was for several months. Um, so that, but the, when I was actually physically doing the research, it was, I think, about three or four months. Uh,
1: and when uh, did you uh, get sent to Burundi?
0: Burundi was a year later.
1: Okay, so uh, I, I guess... No, it was in
0: 96, 96, I'm sorry.
1: In 96 uh, yeah. uh, to Burundi, a few years, two years, I guess, after the Rwanda genocide. Um what What sort of work were you dispatched to do in Burundi? Same same sort of thing?
0: Yeah, no, there it was a bit different. There I was doing some work with um, the Brown University. They have a Department of Humanitarianism and War, and we were looking at the... Impact. There had been a coup, and uh, we were looking at the, the humanitarian impact of economic sanctions on maternal and child health. And we were preparing a report uh, that was that, to be used by the UN and in, in discussions with the UN Security Council. So we were looking very specifically at um, what was happening with the sanctions how easy or difficult it was for groups uh, that were responding to some of the healthcare needs uh, to get those materials into the country because they were uh, initially very restrictive economic sanctions, similar to what you saw in Iraq uh, after the 1991
1: uh, Gulf War. Uh, that's so interesting. So so basically there was a coup in Burundi, uh, the international community, I guess through the Security Council imposed sanctions, and, uh, what effect did these sanctions then have? Like, What, what did your research find on, on the effect that the sanctions had on women uh, women's health issues?
0: It was very similar to what we saw in, in Iraq. Unfortunately, groups, when we impose sanctions, we often don't move fast enough to allow for medical exemptions. And as a result, even in the cases where you do have medical exemptions, you have all kinds of, of delays and confusion that takes place at the borders. And so uh, supplies rapidly run very, very low or they become so incredibly expensive um, that from a health perspective, it can be absolutely devastating, let alone that we don't often think about the other parts of the health infrastructure that might rely on Things that are still on the sanctions list. So, for example, in Iraq, and we also saw this in Burundi. Um, you know, you might you might not be able to get parts for refrigerators, uh, and that can compromise the cold chain, and then your vaccines spoil, and then you are at risk of of having epidemics of vaccine preventable diseases. And we saw lots of of diphtheria and pertussis and and other illnesses that suddenly measles, for example, that suddenly began to to rise. Um, and when you have that in the context of 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 a war-affected country where people are living in close proximity or when they're displaced and they're living in camps, you know, that can result in the deaths of of, of thousands and thousands of of young people, young children especially, that could have been prevented.
1: Do you think that the international community has generally learned from this? I mean, these days you really don't see those kinds of whole-scale economic sanctions anymore with very few exceptions. Uh, Generally, the Security Council, when they impose sanctions, impose it on individuals, uh, they, they, you know, uh, freeze their assets and they ban them from traveling, but there's no longer this uh, whole-scale, countrywide uh, economic sort of stranglehold on, on countries that used to be the case in the 90s and, and before then.
0: That's absolutely correct. And I would like to hope that some of the work that we did do in the 90s, myself and, and my husband, who's also a public health physician, who, did, uh, who was part of the Harvard study team report that uh, initially found that there were half- Um, There were there half a million excess iraqi deaths in children as a result of the early sanctions in the 90s that i I do like to believe that those kinds of efforts that took place in the 90s to demonstrate that complete economic sanctions are absolutely devastating to the very wrong people which are the civilians who are already struggling and it tends not to even touch the leadership that 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 really did change the conversation around how sanctions are used and in what context and who they should be targeting
1: I think pretty much North Korea is currently the only country that experiences these kinds of, like, whole-scale sanctions. But even then, there's, like, big exceptions, exemptions.
0: Yeah, that's right. Now, still, the process of sanctions, even when it comes to what's exempt, um, it again, it can add a layer of, of bureaucracy. But also, it's sometimes it's tough to follow the bouncing ball. And when it comes to spare parts that hospitals need or parts for incubators and all this kind of stuff – Um, You know, sometimes there's a lot of confusion and and unfortunately that can cause delays. But sanctions that target uh, economic sanctions that are very, the more precise a sanction is, um, the more that it targets the leadership, the more that it targets the wealthy elite, the more uh, effective it is without having this kind of collateral damage.
1: Um, so you know you went to Somalia in the uh, height of their or really the, of their civil war or, or long period of anarchy of like twenty years of of being a, a country without a government. Uh, then you went to Burundi shortly after uh, the Rwanda genocide uh, and amidst terrible instability there. Uh, what were, were you at this point? Um, uh, sort of excited about being in war zones? I mean, there's, I think, a personality type where people, you know, appreciate being uh, able to help the most needy people in the world and have this affinity for, for conflict zones. Uh, w- would that describe you at that point in your 20s?
0: I think so. And I think that when you're, you're in your 20s, you, um, I, I, you know, I always took my security very, very seriously. Uh, at the same time, you you do. It sounds like such a terrible cliche, but you do live with this sense of invincibility that you certainly don't have when you're uh, in your 40s and you have a child and, and all these other things. But yeah, and I was I was in Iraq. I was in Liberia. Uh, when charles taylor was was running around the country, so um, you do get to this point where you you want to be on the on the front lines, doing the most good with the most vulnerable people, realizing that the needs are absolutely enormous. Um, and you also get to the point where you have acquired a certain level of experience and and understanding and local connections where you know that your work is is uh, is is more effective too. Um, and so that was very, 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 very important to me. And, uh, and, and you, start to see, you start to see the impact of what you're doing. And, and, and then you don't feel so helpless and, and hopeless. And, and for me, um, I, I, was less, I became less afraid. But that's also the time when you have to really be careful because it's when a lot of this stuff to do with your personal security um, feels very common to you. Um, and, and doesn't feel as reckless, that tends to be the time when you really get into trouble.
1: Uh, so, did you ever get into trouble in Liberia?
0: Uh, I didn't get into trouble in Liberia, um, but I did get into trouble in, uh, well, certainly got into trouble in, in Eastern Congo a few years later uh, in 2004. What happened? We were in the process of uh, we were f- filming a documentary and uh, and also doing some work on, on war health programs. It was an advocacy uh, piece that we were putting together on the connection between our resource extraction and coal tan and mining and uh, sexual violence and the conflict in eastern Congo. Um, and we ended up, we were there when uh, there was a skirmish at the border and the Congolese military arrested some Rwandan generals who were trying to cross back over, and and all hell broke loose, and we were trapped in this locally run hotel, um, really that was right on the front line, uh, while mortars were being exchanged and there was a tremendous amount of gunfire. And then the UN ended up uh, organizing an evacuation because we were about 50 civilians who were all trapped, and we must have spent we spent about a day and a half in uh, in lockdown, and um, the explosions were we really very, very close. And when we ran to the armored personnel carriers, there was kind of gunfire erupting everywhere. And and uh, and I honestly did believe that that we weren't going to make it out alive that time.
1: How did you get word uh, that the UN was was coming? Were you guys in in like contact with them, or, or how did that how did that we happen? We
0: were well. We were quite we were uh, quite fortunate in a few ways. There were representatives of the U.S. Embassy in Kinshasa who were staying at the same uh, locally run hotel. And, um, just like and,
1: independently of you, they were just like doing their own thing there?
0: Yeah, they were independent of us. That's right. And then we also, there was a Canadian peacekeeper by the name of Chuck Pelletier, uh, who was there doing some training, who was also staying at the hotel. In fact, he was in the room, the very next room to ours. And so he was in radio communication. Um, but what prompted the the organization of the evacuation was that there was an attack on a civilian, on an NGO compound uh, quite close to ours, and um, it was quite violent. And so the, the 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 mindset shifted from saying "stay where you are, you're safer where you are" to "okay, you know they're 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 beginning to attack um, civilians in in these areas, and so we have to move the civilians out." And because there were so many of us that were uh, trapped together, um, they ended up uh, coming and and moving us out. And then we spent about a day and a half camped out on the on the lawn of, uh, of the U.N. compound in, uh, in, Bur- in Bukapu.
1: Wow. Um, that that's, uh, sounds like an absolutely harrowing story. Um,
0: you know, it, it, it was, but I also like to keep it in, pers- in perspective in that um, we, were, we were very, very lucky, and 200, about between 200 and 300 people died in the span of that, those 48 hours. And, um, you know, so I certainly recognize that as horrifying as that experience was for, for me and for the people that we were with, uh, it's something that people in Eastern Congo, many millions of them continue to experience every single day. And and I at least have the luxury of having a Canadian passport and recognizing when I need to take a break from all of this. and uh, And I don't take that for granted.
1: Uh, So I want to make sure that we talk about the origin of War Child. Um, So you had been working uh, mostly, it sounds like, in in Africa and in Iraq uh, for, I guess, most of the 90s, uh, doing the the kind of um, reporting and analysis and human rights work uh, that you were talking about. How did the idea or where did the idea of creating uh, a separate NGO come from?
0: Well, having spent um, so much time working with different groups and documenting essentially what were the gaps in terms of uh, protecting children and helping uh, women as well, um, we began to to really wonder how it is that you could build an international organization that had a slightly different approach uh, to dealing with war and that also looked at some of these long-term deficits because you had many great organizations from Uh, the the Red Cross to the U.N. and others who would would focus on those short-term humanitarian needs, so food, water, shelter, blankets, health care, for example, vaccination programs, but children were falling farther and farther behind in terms of education. We knew that young people who were being recruited and abducted into militia groups would go back to communities, and they had missed out on four or five years of school, and then that became a risk for those communities as well, because with few programs available to them, they would then go back to militia groups or form criminal gangs or participate in other unlawful activities, begging on the streets, prostitution. Um, We also began to see that there was this pattern that, continue to play itself out, where you had this big uh, you had international attention, you had the cameras there, you had this big rush of international organizations jockeying for position that were relying on a network um, of expatriate experts uh, who often didn't understand the local circumstances very, very well. And when they pulled out, that infrastructure and that learning went with them um, to the next crisis. And you saw the not only the missed opportunities, but the amount of cynicism and even uh, resentment uh, that existed within local communities who were capable of doing that work with the right kinds of investments and the right kind of resources and training, and so we started to ask, well, how can you build a humanitarian organization that bridges this emergency humanitarian work with development work that really identifies those local partners, that invests in them, that raises their skill levels so that they can actually uh, lead the work and and identify what the priorities are and, and work with those communities because they they have that legitimacy and they have that local knowledge and how do you bridge that with what we're seeing is the real gaps that kids are facing around education around justice around economic development even in these difficult circumstances where people tend not to have a long-term vision Uh, but recognizing that without that long-term vision that cycle of violence just continues to play itself out and so we started wrestling with well, what kind of programs can you build that will actually well so can i interrupt you
1: like who's we
0: uh. Oh, uh, <laughs> that's a very good question. Uh, so the organization was uh, it was myself, uh, my husband, Eric Hoskins, and then we also had a group of of really close uh, personal advisors here from James Rubinsky, who's the past president of Doctors Without Borders internationally, uh, to Nigel Fisher, who is a very, very senior, seasoned uh, UNICEF guy, um, to a number of different people that we liaised with and consulted. And at the same time, in Europe, there had been um, a a music-based fundraising initiative called War Child that was raising money for uh, children in the the former Yugoslavia. And so we thought, okay, well, how can you build an organization that does really good on-the-ground work with an organization that also changes the way people perceive and think about humanitarian assistance and aid and moving away from these short-term quick-fix solutions and looking at our own uh, involvement in war and what that all means. And so we sort to put the, the two together, and I wouldn't say that we had a major plan, um, but we knew what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it, and then we just started, and that was in 1999.
1: And so were you like sitting around a kitchen table in Toronto sort of thing with your husband and, and a few other people trying to figure this out
0: we did that we also carried this this conversation went on for at least four years and when I think back on it because every time we went overseas and we're back home we kept thinking there has to be something that we can do differently there has to be something we can do differently and um, and so it was yeah it was a lot of it was a lot of wine it was a lot of conversation it was a lot of consultation with experts. Um, a lot of discussion with other organizations, what do you think in this thing and what do you think we can do better? And, uh, and then based on those conversations, we started pulling it together.
1: So how did the collaboration with the music industry start? I mean, I, you know, I know you through your work because I'm sort of a nerd about these issues, but I would imagine that most people uh, probably know of War Child through the CDs that I, I suppose like act as fundraisers for you.
0: Yeah, we have done a lot of music-based, Uh, it is a big part of our fundraising. Um, So we have done music CDs. We do some benefit shows. We do advocacy that can involve different music artists. But I would, you know, I think for us it's really... Um, it's a way to get people involved in the conversation. And, and I hope that, that, you know, we have more people who are just like you and just like me who are nerds about this issue who say, yeah, you know, th- I, I am critical about AIDS, but I also believe that it can do good in the world. And so how can I channel my knowledge and my passion into, uh, you know, into work that actually ha- shares those values that I have? And, um, and so I like to believe that even if people do maybe hear about us in, in a non-traditional way, because they went to a concert and, uh, and, and Alicia Keys may have mentioned it, um, that they then use that as a springboard for deeper engagement.
1: Um, so can I ask, so, so you, uh, you know, had background, you know, in medicine and a background working for UNICEF, but you had never uh, started an NGO before. Um, so uh, I guess... Did you have any, like, big major hiccups along the way, any sort of lessons you drew from, from uh, you know, like, starting this this line of work?
0: Oh, my goodness. You know, running starting and running an NGO is nothing but a series of hiccups. It's, uh, I don't know, it, it, it often feels, and, and I don't think, I think any organization has this, even ones that have been around for 50 years. Um, it really feels two steps forward, one step back all the time. And, uh,
1: Was there like a moment that you thought, okay, we've made it. This is now a thing. There's some permanence to this organization. Um, like did, did you have that, like, that, that, um, that that realization or that moment where you realized that, you know, this thing is more than just, you know, Samantha Nutt. This is an actual entity that can like exist with or without you.
0: Well, I like to believe that the way that we started it and the philosophy that we had, that we made it clear that we always wanted it to be about more than Samantha Nutt and that, you know, my role is to try to draw attention to the issues, try to fundraise for the organization so that it can do its good work, but it certainly isn't uh, about me and nor should it be about me. It really is about um, people who are living with war every day and who are an extraordinary part of our programs and who are doing great and courageous things um, and my my role is to try to channel attention and awareness and resources to, towards them. Um, in terms of whether we ever feel you ever feel that you have arrived, I, you know, I, I don't ever feel that. I mean, I if even if you just look at the last couple of years with um, with Iraq and the mounting instability in Syria and now ISIS and the, the problems that have plagued Afghanistan, um, unfortunately, you always. Are, you, I live my life and we as an organization are always acutely aware of the things that we're not able to do. And I think that and, and there is frustration there. And, and when you spend every day knowing that you could do more if you had the resources or you should be doing more because the needs are so great, um, you, you never really rest on your laurels. And I don't see that as a bad thing. Um, we are an organization in constant evolution, and I think that the best aid models subscribe to that kind of, that kind of theory. Um, it, it is iterative. It is the question of saying, how are we doing, and are we doing enough, and are we doing it well enough, and then revising and changing uh, it based, based on, on what you're learning.
1: Always nice to end on some words of wisdom. Thank you so much to Samantha Nutt for speaking with me. Thank you all for listening. Uh, and if you're new to the podcast, and I suspect many of you are, I've gotten a whole great number of new subscribers over the last uh, couple weeks. So I just wanted to let you know there is a treasure trove of past interviews like the one you just listened to on globaldispatchespodcast.com. So subscribe on iTunes, check out the website, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.